right, super pumped up to be with you guys tonight. Um, thank you for um, letting me come and, and do this tonight. And uh, thanks for the questions. I, I want to tell you that um, I want to say this kind of off, kind of set a ground rule here. I thought every question I received was a great question. I want you to know that. There were no bad questions, no dumb questions, really good questions. Um, but if I make a joke about something, it is not a joke at your question. It's because I just can't go that long without making some kind of snide remark or joke. Okay, so that's, that's the first kind of ground rule. So what I have done is, I, um, for some of the questions, I have grouped them. Because some of the questions were uh, along a similar vein. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tackle, like, maybe the first one's like four questions. And uh, in the course of my answer, I will try to at least answer all four of uh, those questions. But before I get started, I would like for us to pray and just ask God to give us open hearts to hear truth tonight. Because while you ask really good questions, you may still not like my answers. Um, but I want you to hear truth. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these students. I thank you for what they want to do for your kingdom. I thank you for their uh, their heart and their desire. I thank you for their desire to grow um, and to have beliefs and behaviors that please you, that honor you. And so tonight, I'm asking you to open all of our hearts uh, to your word, to your truth, uh, that we might uh, truly experience the blessed life you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first set of questions. First set of questions. Um, the, here are the first four that I kind of grouped. The first one, how do you know if someone is supposed to be in your life? So I thought that was a relational question. Uh, so when, when will you know that you have been content with Christ to then know that you should pursue someone in marriage? Like when are you ready for marriage? How do you know you have met the one God intended for you? And does God know who my future spouse is? Is it a specific person or does God bless any marriage that abides by his guidelines? So first question, how do you know if someone's supposed to be in your life? You take them to Starbucks. If they order anything pumpkin spice, you don't need that in your life. Just, just, just leave them alone, okay, forever. I mean, come on. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are dog people and there are evil people. Okay, so that, no, I'm just, th those are just the jokes, okay? I promise. Um, but... Um, I would say in response to the first question, I'll kind of single it out. You need to ask yourself a question about every relationship in your life, whether it is a friendship, whether it is um, a professional relationship someday, or whether it is a romantic relationship. And that is wings or weight. That's what I call it. Wings or weight. Does it lift me up or does it drag me down? That, that's the primary question in a relationship. So you got to ask yourself a question. Is it lifting me up? Is it, is it moving me closer to Jesus? Am, am, is my life um, more godly? Am I more content uh, when I am around this person? Or um, is this person really a drag on my life? Um, is this person leading me in the opposite direction from Jesus? So that's kind of my answer to the first question, and I think it could be applied to a lot of other things, but I thought it kind of fit into the relationship category, so we went with that. Now, let me kind of tackle the other three, because they are specifically about 
marriage. And I totally get that at this point in your lives, you're beginning to have those thoughts, good thing, unless God specifically calls you to, uh, to, sing, to a single life. And there are some people that, that just, they don't feel a compulsion to get married. They don't feel an urgency. And God has called them to a life of celibacy. Um, and if that's you, then you, I honor that. But for the rest of us, which is the most of us, the temptations of this world are too great. And you need, uh, you need marriage, just to be honest with you. So I think it's a good thing for you to think about. So let me, let me kind of tackle a couple of these right off the bat. And as a matter of fact, what I would say to you is the first two things I'm going to say to you, if you don't learn anything else that I say tonight, I wish you'd really take this to heart. Um, if you don't learn anything else from me the entire time you're here and I'm your pastor and you come on Sunday mornings, these two things for your earthly life, not eternal life, but for your earthly life, these two things could help you out a great deal. Here's what I want you to understand. Um, how do you know you've met the one God intended for you? The one is a Taylor Swift song, not a biblical truth, okay? Um, you, need, you need to get, get that uh, kind of in your head, okay? And, and I'm very serious about that. Uh, I've, I've said that kind of tritely, but um, there is this thought that some people have, um, that some people have that, that like, there's like one person and I got to find that one person in order to find happiness. I got to find that one person. And like it'll stress you out because you'll be going, you'll be laying in the bed at night and, and you don't have a date. And, and you're going, you know what? My, my, my girlfriend or my boyfriend, uh, they didn't come to MSU. I made the choice to go to MSU and I've blown up, you know, finding the one. And, and they're at OU or they're at, you know, Texas or wherever. And, and I'm here at MSU and I'm never going to meet them. And I've, I've, I've ruined God's will for my life. You're not that big and powerful. Don't, don't stress over that. That's, that's not the case. But I want to prove to you biblically that this concept of the one is much more of a romance. And I get it. You know, you like movies and you like the songs. It's much more of a romance than it is of biblical truth. There's a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 7 where the Apostle Paul is giving some instructions about marriage. And specifically, in the verse I'm going to give you, he's talking about remarriage. There's a lady whose wife has died. And he says of this woman, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to, read it out loud, to, can you see it? To whom? Say it out loud. She wishes. Not to the one. She is free to marry the one to whomever she wishes now, that last phrase is important, and I'll get to that, and that is only in the Lord, okay? But what Paul is saying is there are any number of people that you could carve out a satisfying, God-honoring, fulfilling, fun, um, sanctified life with. And there is not this one person that you got to find, like the needle in the haystack, or you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. That is not what the Bible teaches. Now, the Bible does teach that last phrase, though, only in the Lord. There is this issue of marrying someone who has the same spiritual commitments that you have. And that is 
something that I am going to say is incredibly, incredibly important to you. But there's something insidious in this idea that there's one. And let me tell you what it is. In 1995, Marianne and I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana. I was serving a church there. And we made friends with this couple. And we loved them. They loved us. We were guests in their home. We, we went on a couple of trips together. We were constantly going out to dinner together. And about, I was there for 10 years, about eight years after um, we got there, they really started having some issues and some problems. And I talked to them, and, and I talked to him a lot, and we prayed a lot. And uh, they stayed together. And then after 10 years, I left that church. And so I moved, we moved away. And then here's what happened. And it's not because I left, but here's what happened. Larry, the husband, gets on Facebook. This was like, like early 2000s when Facebook first came up, out. Everybody was on Facebook. And he reconnected with an old high school girlfriend. You know this isn't going to end well, right? You figured this out? You're smart people? Yeah. So Larry decides that he married the wrong person. That he was out of God's will when he married his wife that we were friends with. So he needed to go marry this other person. Now that's just a demonic lie is all that is. But this concept of the one um, really infected him. And it kept him from working on the marriage he had and saying, you know what? The marriage that I have is the one. Look, before you get married, there are a lot of people who can be the one. But after you get married, there's one and only. All right? So let's just kind of draw that line. And that's why marriage is so serious. Let me give you, though, um, to answer some of the other questions that are in this, I want to give you seven ways for you to know if you're ready to get married and if you should marry that person. Okay? I'm going to give you seven of them. If you write anything down, you ought to write these seven things down. Number one, spiritual compatibility. That is the top priority. The Bible says marriage is anything. It is being bound together with another person. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what, par what par partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's a demon. Or what, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? I will tell you that the single most important ingredient, the greatest determining factor about the success of a Christian marriage is that you marry another Christian, that you marry somebody who shares the same spiritual values that you share. Now, that is an absolute biblical command. So my first two things is there is no one, but you can make the one of anyone that is in the Lord. The second is spiritual compatibility. But I want to give you uh, some other things that I've just seen in 33 years of being a pastor. Okay? Second one, marry for friendship. Marry for friendship. You're going to spend a lot more time in what I would just call friendship kind of venues than you are in sexual venues. Okay? There's a lot more time in marriage in being a friend with someone, in having things in common with someone, 
than having sex with someone. Now, I, w- I am here to testify that sex is a really good thing in marriage, okay? I would just like to go on record with that. But there's a lot more to life than sex. And I, I, and I hate to tell you guys that, but it's the truth, okay? It's, it's the way it's going to happen to you. And you want to marry someone that you, that you are a friend with, that you want to spend time with, not naked, okay? That you want to spend time with on a trip, that you want to spend time with at the movies, that you want to go to concerts with. Marry a friend. So if, if in the course of a, of a dating relationship, you are strongly, physically attracted to somebody, but you fight like cats and dogs, I'm going to tell you that's not wise, okay? It's not wise to pursue that. Uh, the third, uh, the first one is spiritual compatibility. Second is marry for friendship. The third is a shared vision of the future. As you date someone or as you spend time with someone, you need to be talking about not just trivial things, but you need to start talking about some serious things sometimes. Like, for example, career. Um, if she wants to go to law school... And her vision for her life is, you know, what I'd really like to do, I'd really like to practice corporate law, downtown Dallas. I want to work in one of those high rises. I want to make a half a million dollars a year. And he says, you know what I really want to do is I want to coach high school football in a small West Texas town and go hunting and fishing every weekend. Not the same vision. Not the same vision. Um, let me give you a, a big one, okay? Children. If one says... I want a house full of kids, and the other says, not interested. You don't have the same vision for the future, and I want to tell you something. There is misery in that if you don't ask the right questions. So that's just, And that's just a couple of examples because I've got a lot of questions here tonight, but, but a shared vision of the future. Number four, um, I, I say this often. And uh, I confess, guys, this is not as much for you as it is for the young ladies here in the room. Um, It's all about your marriage, not about the wedding. The wedding is a day. The marriage is for the rest of your life. And um, this happens, um, it happened like when Prince William married Catherine, and then it happened again. When Harry uh, married Meghan, like people see these royal weddings, and I don't know, it just does something to young ladies. I mean, you just want that, right? I mean, this is the stuff of Disney movies, and, and you just want the fantasy. I get it. It's okay to want the fantasy, but the fantasy isn't the real deal. And the real deal is waking up when he has bad breath the next, you know, the next morning, and. The real deal is that he leaves his dirty underwear on the floor of the restroom and he doesn't pick up his dirty clothes. I mean, it's the real deal, okay? So you got to think more about the marriage than the wedding. Number five, and this is, uh, I'm back to you guys and ladies here. You got to burn the bridges to your past relationships. You got to burn. So if, if, if you're not ready to burn the bridges, if you're thinking, you know, I, I really you know, I really love this girl, and, and I think I love her, and I think I could spend my life with her, but boy, there's that former girlfriend, and I don't know, sometimes I think about going, no, you're not ready. 
If you're not ready to burn that bridge, you're not ready. Um, Number six, don't expect big changes once you're married. If you're marrying him or her to change him or her, you are going to be a very disappointed person. Because the only person who can change them in your marriage is God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe God changes people. I really do. But if you go into the marriage thinking, uh, me and God going to change this. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna work this out. We're going to work the rough edges out. Or we're going we're gonna to change the ambition. Or we're gonna, especially like the child thing. You know, uh, you want ten. She says maybe one. Uh, maybe not any. You're not going to change that. Don't, don't go in thinking you're going to change that. So you got to understand. Don't expect big changes once you're married. And number seven. And this is um, something I would say is really important. Remember... God uses marriage as a tool for sanctification. I believe that marriage is not a a goal. Marriage is a tool that God uses in our lives to form us spiritually. I will tell you that apart from the church, my marriage has been the most spiritually formative part of my life. Um, I believe God wants to do that. Now, the reason I use that one last is to answer part of this question. is like, when do you know you're ready? I'm going to tell you a secret as a 59-year-old adult. And some of you don't think, are going to say, I don't know if I believe that or not. You're never going to feel ready for anything. You're not. Here's a secret that most adults won't tell you. Nobody ever really feels grown up. You're like, man, my dad, he must have had a lot more together than I do. No, he probably didn't. Man, my mom, she just, she just had, had it all together. No, she didn't. Here's the truth. The truth is we're all still walking in growth and in development, and none of us are ever going to be 100% ready. My daughter came along when I was 44 years old. I was a first-time parent when I'm 44 years old. And I remember when Marianne tells me we're pregnant, I almost had a panic attack. I'm like, how could, how could I possibly be a father? Look, I was old enough to have a father of a son in, or a daughter in college at 44, right? Some of your parents are that age. And yet I didn't feel ready. You're never going to feel ready. Marriage is formative. You don't, you don't get to this perfect place and then do it. You make sure you check off those first six boxes, and then what you got to do is trust at some point. So that's my marriage talk, and hope I answered uh, most of those questions in the course of doing that. All right, next question, uh, and this totally goes in the opposite direction. I promise I did not put these together for any reason. Do you think witchcraft still exists in power today? <laughs> <laughs> I promise I didn't put that next to the marriage one for a reason. Um, Short answer, yes. The question is, where does the power come from? Um, I showed you a slide in uh, worship service for those of you who were in the Sunday morning worship service about two weeks ago from National Geographic, hardly a Christian publication, which said that paganism is on the rise in America. And that includes Wiccans, 
which is a nice name for witchcraft. And uh, a lot of people kind of think that's a joke, but it's not a joke for the people who are involved in it. But I want to show you a couple of verses of Scripture that I do think are really, really important. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, near the end of the book. This is uh, a passage that's actually about hell, just to give you the context. It says this, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts. Um, the word there literally in the language of the Greek New Testament is sorcery. It's witchcraft. Those who practice magical arts the idolaters and liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's talking about who's going to go to hell someday. And he says that those who practice witchcraft or these magical arts sorcery um, are far from God. But the source of that is revealed a little earlier in the Revelation. In, the, in Revelation uh, chapter 18, verse 2. This is kind of obscure. I know Revelation is hard to understand, but you, you'll see this. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons. Demons and a haunt for every evil spirit and a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Now, I don't know what demons, evil spirits, and birds have in common, but I'm just going to focus on the evil spirits and the demons for a moment. A little bit later in that same chapter, talking about the same thing, this is what the Bible says. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men, but by your magic spells, by your sorcery, all the nations were led astray. Does witchcraft exist today? Yes, it does. But if there is any genuine power in it, it is demonic. It is purely evil, and you need to stay as far away from it as you possibly can. Now look, there are some guys who are Christians going to heaven. I mean, they're wonderful people who are illusionists. And they do things, you know, that, that, are, that we know it's an illusion, right? But if anybody claims that they have real power, these are people you need to stay away from, um, just to kind of put that bluntly. By the way, I was asked a question the other day verbally that I thought I would throw in here, and that is, what do I believe about, like, ghost stories? Um, I have to be honest with you, I hate this time of year, especially like I'll be flipping through the channels and I'll see a movie that I want to watch. I mean, I, like Aven I really like Avengers movies. I like James Bond movies. I like the so I'm watching that, and especially like if it's on FX, um, the commercials, like the ads on FX are for the grossest, most hideous, like the Halloween movies, you know, like the bloody movies and the haunted stuff movies, all that. I just hate that stuff. But I was asked, what do I believe about ghosts? And here's what I believe about ghosts. I believe that if anybody tells me they have seen a ghost, they've seen a demon. I, I believe that. Um, I had a situation with a family in our church where the daughter, very young daughter, was seeing her grandfather in her room. Only problem was her grandfather had died about three years ago. And she insisted that she was seeing her grandfather in her room. I said, one of two things is, is going on here. First of all, her grandfather was a Christian, and he's, in, he's with Jesus right now. So he's not coming back to her room. That's not her grandfather. So either she's making this up, which is, I mean, come on. That's possible for a young child to do who misses her grandparent. I get that. 
But if she's really seeing something that's demonic, so you need to pray over that. Let me tell you what happened. They started praying over her room. They started praying a specific prayer, and she stopped seeing her grandfather almost immediately. Um, I'm telling you that this stuff is evil, and there is real evil in the world. Okay, that leads me to a next question, and that is this. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, here we go. In the Bible, it says all will rise up to heaven. Um, I'm gonna, I, I think I know what you meant by that, um, except I would just insert, no, we're not. Um, the word, I have a problem with the word all, okay? Everybody's not going, all right? So, but I think what you meant was, I, I read it in context with the second part, okay? After we die, do we immediately go to heaven, or do we wait in the grave until Jesus comes back and all rise together when Jesus defeats the evil? Okay, this is actually a very good question, even though the first of it kind of threw me off just a little bit. And this is the order of um, what is called the order of eschatology or the order of last things. Like, how does this all work when we die? That's what people want to know. Well, let me answer this question for you biblically um, rather than uh, just kind of answering point by point through the question. Just let me give you what happens when we die. First of all, let's, let's talk about who you are. You are created in the image of God. Every single person in this room. God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. And so, um, that there's a part of you, obviously, that's going to die someday. Part of me is going to die someday. The physical body is going to die someday. But when your body dies, when my heart stops beating, when that last breath is exhaled from my body, something happens with my soul and spirit in that moment. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, Paul is writing, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Okay, so while I'm alive, I'm not like in the presence of Jesus at that moment. Not, not the manifest presence. I know Jesus is everywhere, but I'm not with Jesus in that moment. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. There is a part of you that's going to die. Body is going to die. You're going to lay it in a grave. There is a part of you that's going to live as long as God lives. And the moment you die, that part of you leaves the body. You are not consciously going to be laying in a box buried in the dirt for hundreds of years if it took that long for Jesus to come back. I, wanna, I offer that to you as a comforting fact. Um, I've actually had people who misunderstand this who were almost panicked uh, in a sense of claustrophobia. Like, I'm going to be laying in a box for 100, like 100 years till Jesus comes back. No, you're not. You are going to be at home with the Lord. When he says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, that word at home is sometimes translated present, but it literally means face to face. This is what I, I believe with all my heart. You are going to close your eyes someday and die. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to open them in a split second face to face with Jesus. You're going to be in the presence of Jesus. Now, here's what is real. 
you don't go to the place where there are streets of gold and gates of pearl and all that. That's kind of a myth here, okay? That, that's where I need to straighten a little something out. Your spirit and your, your spirit and soul go immediately into the presence of God. By the way, your soul is your personality. It's, it's your basic personality. It's what, kind of what makes you, you, okay? And that, you're going to be you in heaven, which is great. I mean, God created you, and we're all a little bit different, and that's a beautiful thing about heaven. But what's going to happen is someday Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, since, remember, we, we are present with him, we're going to be with him when he comes back. And a miraculous event is going to take place, and here's what, how the Bible describes it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. See, somebody, somebody asked the Apostle Paul this question about those who are asleep, that, that is a euphemism for dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. Remember, we're with Jesus. So when Jesus comes back, we're going to be with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, remember we're with him, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, here it is, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to die someday. Your soul, your spirit is going to depart this body. The body is going to be laid in the ground. It's going to rot. Mine is too. But your spirit's going to be as alive as it's ever been. You're going to be with the Lord until Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, he's going to bring you with him. And there's going to be a resurrection. And you're not going to get that old, decrepit body. The Bible says what you're going to get is a body that is immortal. It is imperishable. It, it doesn't get diseases. It doesn't have sprained ankles. It doesn't have bad knees. It, it, it doesn't ever get a disease. It is absolutely a perfect body because this, this body is corrupted by sin. That new body that you're going to get is incorruptible. And that's the new body that you're going to get. Now, I want you to remember, think about this. Since your old body is being resurrected and it's being transformed into a new body, people ask me this question all the time. What are we going to look like in heaven? I think you're going to look like you. Now, that's, a, that's an opinion. If I share something that's an opinion, I'll tell you that. If I give you a Bible verse, it's biblical truth. But I think since your body's being resurrected, you're going to be you. Because your soul, your personality is being reunited with your body. You're going to look like you. It's just the, the, with this imperishable body. The, that's the moment then after, uh, after the judgment in which we will then go into the place with the streets of gold and the gates of pearl. The city that is referred to in Revelation, the book of the Revelation that we call heaven. The, the Revelation actually calls it the New Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to spend for all eternity. So that's kind of a long way around to answer a question that I thought was very thoughtful, very good question. Um, so, uh, okay, let me, let me just move on. Um, here's the next one. Homosexuality is a sin, and I know that, so we don't have to plow that ground. 
but I'm confused on how to go about friendships with gay people. When we are called to love others, how can you be a Christian and be a friend to someone who is gay? I, I, first of all, I just want to say um, thank you for the question. Uh, thank you for the way it was framed. It seems to me to be framed very much in love. And I would, uh, I would absolutely sort of pat you on the back uh, for that. Um, I would say this. Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. And we too should be friends of sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen, the Son of Man came uh, eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, he's a gluttonous man. That was his critics. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus had a reputation as a friend of sinners. But I do need to probably back up just a little bit and talk about what kind of friend Jesus was. Let me tell you what kind of friend of sinners Jesus was. There's this wonderful story in John's Gospel. And it doesn't um, seem wonderful in the beginning, but the outcome of it is wonderful. Jesus is teaching one day, and, a, and like he's got a crowd around him, and there's this kind of this commotion at the back, and they're pushing people out of the way. And these black-robed Pharisees push all the people out of the way, and they shove this woman down at Jesus' feet. And she's barely covered by her clothing because they've dragged her out of her bed. And they say, teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. We should kill her right here. What do you say? Now they think we, I, we have got Jesus over a barrel. Because if he says stone her then the people will say, well, he's, he's just as harsh as we are. He'll lose his reputation. But if he says, don't stone her, he proves himself to not obey the law of Moses. So we got him. And the Bible says that Jesus knelt down and he wrote, scribbled something in the sand. And I have no clue what he wrote in the sand. And nobody else does either. But he, was, he wrote something in the sand. And... When he stood up, he looked at, uh, at, these, at these men. He said, uh, so he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Go ahead. Stoner. The one of you who's perfect. And John records from the oldest to the youngest. It's kind of like there was a little wisdom here. They dropped their rocks, clump, 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 and they turned and walked away. And then Jesus is left alone with the woman. And Jesus looks at her and he says, where are your accusers? <laughs> she looks right and says, oh, they left. And he says these words, neither do I condemn you. But he didn't stop there. Go and sin no more. That's the kind of friend of sinner Jesus was. Jesus did not cast stones at sinners.
But Jesus didn't condone her sin either. This is a thin line to walk, and I confess that. And it's, a, it's probably a, 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 such a legitimate question to say, how can I do this? And that is that you have to understand that you must stand on biblical truth. Now, biblical truth is truth and love. But you, you can't compromise what God's Word says in order to just kind of pat somebody on the back and tell them they're going to be okay. Um, but you also can't be condemning. And so this is truly, truly a, a difficult situation. I think I, I wrote down a couple of things, just kind of advice here. First of all, um, in order to be this kind of friend, you're going to have to be okay with being the one who is marginalized. Uh, the majority of your friends think there's nothing wrong with same-sex relationships. They think sleeping around's okay. They think we Christians are backwards. Uh, and you're going to have to you're going to have to be okay with being the one who's on the margin. You're not going to be in the center. Uh, number two, aim for love and not for likes. You may not get likes, but you you got to aim for love. And number three, I would say this. I have never won an enemy to Christ. I've only won my friends to Christ. So if I win a friend first, then I might have an opportunity to win them to Christ. Um, I've never argued. I've never won an argument where somebody said, you're so right. Um, I'm going to repent now. And I mean, that doesn't happen. I mean, if you get into an argument, it's just going to stay an argument. Because here's, here's what happens when we get into an argument. We get into an argument, I'm concerned about winning the argument, not winning the person. And I'm, I'm interested in the person, not the argument. Uh, and I find that a lot of Christians in our generation are much more interested in winning an argument than winning people to Jesus. So uh, that's my best answer to that question. It's probably an incomplete one, but... Um, I would, just, I would just add this. Let me tell you something that's always bothered me about that story. They said to Jesus, they said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Where was the man? If they caught her in the act of adultery, doesn't it take two to do that? See, they used her as a pawn. And what I would say to you is that if you want to win somebody to Christ, that if you want to see somebody's life genuinely transformed, then you can't be interested in using them. You have to be interested in loving them. So that's just for what it's worth. All right, next question. Who was Jesus before he came to earth? More specifically, what did he do in the beginning and throughout the Old Testament? Um, this is a very... This could be a very lengthy, lengthy question. But who it was Jesus before he came to earth? He is God because he's always been God. He was God in the beginning. So let me go to the very beginning. And the very beginning is not Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. The very beginning is John chapter 1 verse 1. In John chapter 1 verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, John kind of begins this, he's kind of like a poet. So we've got to figure out who this word is that he's talking about, and he'll reveal it in just a moment. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, read it out loud, 
The Word was with God and the Word was God. So whoever the Word is was God. He was in the beginning. All things came into being through Him. In other words, He's part of creation. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then John goes into this whole section about John the Baptist. And you're kind of thinking, if you read it for the first time, you never read this before, you're thinking, oh, it's John the Baptist. He's the Word. No. Because what John eventually says is, he was a witness to the Word. He was the forerunner for the Word, but he wasn't the Word. And then he says this in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who could that be? It's the Sunday school answer. Come on. Jesus, very good. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What we celebrate at Christmas, by the way, I quote that verse every year at Christmas when we light the candles, is God becoming a man. The very name Emmanuel means God in our presence. God has come down to be with us. Who was Jesus in the Old Testament? God. Now, there are some moments in the Old Testament where we think we see glimpses of Jesus. And I'll tell you, uh, give you a couple of examples of those. One is there's a moment when Jacob wrestles with somebody who is called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. We believe that was Jesus. And Jesus touched him on the hip and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. So there's that. Um, I personally believe... That there was this moment in Daniel, in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Some of you grew up in church, you heard this story. Uh, there were three Hebrews, and they wouldn't worship an idol. And so they got thrown in this furnace of fire. And the king looked in to see if they were uh, barbecuing, if they were roasting. And he says, I thought we threw three men in. And they said, yes, we threw those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. And he says, but I see a fourth man in the fire, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. I think that's Jesus. I think Jesus was in the fire with them. So who was Jesus before he came to earth? God. Who is Jesus when he was on earth? He was God in human flesh. Who is Jesus going to be in the future? God. So that, if that helps. I would say this, and I have some wonderful Mormon friends whom I do love, and so I don't say this to belittle, or to, but, but Mormonism teaches a very, something very different from that. Mormonism teaches that Jesus is a created being. We do not believe that. We believe that God is eternal, eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So just give you that little, throw that one out there. Okay, I'm going to go faster. How much time do I have? Am I done? Okay. Wow. I have five minutes to settle the Calvinism-Arminian debate. Okay. So if we have free will, how has God predestined our outcomes? Specifically, who receives the Holy Spirit? And why do I receive the Holy Spirit when other people don't receive the Holy Spirit? Okay. I'm going to show you some verses of Scripture. And I'm going to talk about this free will thing uh, and, uh, for just a couple of minutes. 2 Peter 3.9, okay? says this. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some counsel on us, but is patient toward you. He doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay? Next verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, um, those two verses seem to indicate that God wants to see all people saved. 
that that would be his, his heart, would be that all people would be saved. But then, like Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So there's a couple of verses of scripture that seem to indicate that God wants all people to be saved. And then there's this verse of scripture over here that says predestination. Which one's right? How many of you kind of think it's all people? How many of you like the first two verses? No? Oh, I got a couple of people. How many of you like the predestination one? You like that one? Okay. Got a couple of people right there. Okay. You're heretics. You're supposed to like them all. <laughs> they're all true. It's just that they're all hard to reconcile. Okay. They're all hard to reconcile. Let me make a few statements and I'm going to summarize as fast as I can. You have a will. Yes, you do. You make consequential choices, but you do not have a free will. You have a fallen will. You have a will that is warped by sin. You cannot choose not to be a sinner because you're already one. And you couldn't make that choice when you were two. You lied when you were two. Before anybody taught you to lie, you have a fallen will. There are two things that have to be held, I believe, in dynamic tension biblically. One is people make consequential choices. The second is God is sovereign and in control. Both are true. Take comfort in the fact that you're not powerful enough to overcome God's sovereignty. And take responsibility that God's given you important, significant choices to make. Uh, I'm going to answer the next uh, three questions real quick. How does the devil know God's plan for your life? Short answer, he doesn't. God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. The devil is a created being. The devil does not know everything. But let me tell you what the devil knows. He knows your habits and he knows your patterns. He has copious notes on all of us. Okay? Not only that, he is not in all places at all times. But let me tell you what he does know. He knows what God's will for everyone's life is. Let me give you a couple examples of that. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He knows that's God's will for you because that's written in the book. So if he can get you to deviate from that, then he gets you in a place where you're walking in violation of the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, he knows that obedience is God's will for you. So, all right, last two questions and I'm going to finish. Uh, well, I'm going to go fast. What is the difference between having hope, faith, and trust in God? Are they all the same thing? Faith and trust are the same thing. Hope is a little bit different, but it's rooted in faith and trust. The word faith or trust is the same word in the, New, the Greek New Testament. It's just translated differently. It means to lean or to put all your weight on something. It is an experience that is rooted in the past. Hope is an expectation. Faith is rooted in experience. Hope is an expectation. It is rooted in the future, but they are both rooted in the promise of God. One last thing, and I'm going to be done. How do I rekindle my passion for the Lord? I have this feeling of being stuck. And then the other was best ways to study the Bible with a busy schedule. Here's what I want you to understand. And I'm not being patronizing. You're never not going to be busy. Never. It's not going to get easier. You need to carve out while you're in college some time for God because it's never going to get easier to carve out time for God. I mean, come on. You've got more time 
now than you will in a few years. I mean, where else but college? Can you start your day at 10 and end by 2 and still be a success? I mean, come on, guys. Some of you got that 10 o'clock class. You're sleeping in. All right, I get it. But the truth is this. You need to take some time. Here, this is my recommendation. Um, you need to carve out a meaningful 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes. You say, I don't have 30 minutes. Yeah, you do. If I followed you around, I will guarantee you I could find 30 minutes that you're staring at that phone. You're scrolling through the grams, you know. You're reading Twitter, you know. I, I get it. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But how many of you, I'm, be honest with me, how many of you have ever been sitting there and you're going, I've been doing this for an hour. I didn't realize I've been sitting here for an hour. I mean, it happens to us, right? It does, okay? So you've got 30 minutes. Don't tell me you don't have 30 minutes, okay? Take 30 minutes. If, you've, if you don't have a Bible reading plan, read the Gospel of John. Read one chapter a day. Or read until something gets your attention, like you feel like God is speaking to me. If your spiritual life seems stale, let me tell you an approach that I take. I'm not reading my Bible I'm reading God's love letter to me. That's the reason he wrote it. That's the reason he gave it to us. Because he wants us to know how much he loves us. And he wants us to save us from our self-destruction, our sin, our stupidity. Okay? So that is my approach. Um, that's my best answer to that in like 30 seconds. So, all right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these great questions. Thank you for